0: Father God, we pray uh, for uh, your presence, as uh, Shira was talking about before, Lord. Uh, It's in your presence that we find sustenance for our souls and the kind of rightness that uh, makes us secure. I pray, Lord, you minister to our hearts today, that you would illuminate our minds, you change us all at least a little bit before we go. Amen. I pray, Lord, for a kingdom moment uh, this morning, that you would empower us to be kingdom people and to leave kingdom lives as we go out into the world this week. Thank you that we have so much to celebrate. Thank you that we have so much strength on which to draw. I pray, Lord, that you'd push us a little bit this morning, those of us who need it, to go from being existers to adventurers. We pray uh, for a life of purpose and impact. In Christ's name, everybody says, amen. amen. I know you don't need warm-ups because it's so hot, so let me just skip right to the pop quiz this morning. What's the last significant thing you changed about yourself? What's, what's the last significant thing that you changed about yourself? I'll give you eight seconds to think about that. Now, it depends a little bit on what you think is significant. For some of you, it might be like my hairstyle. Okay. All right. Um, For some of you, it might be uh, you came to church this morning. Uh, All sorts of things. No rules. Just whatever comes. So you got eight seconds. What's the last significant thing you changed about yourself? Part B. And what was the key? All right. Go. Go. All right. Let me hear some answers. Let me hear some answers. Faith Navasco gave us some uh, good bookmarks to give away. So if I like your answer, I'll give you a blue water bookmark. That's how it goes. Yes. You change worrying about yourself. You decided to worry more. Less, less. Excellent. Excellent. Fantastic. You can come forward and redeem your bookmark after the surface. Yeah. What else? You resigned your job and came to Hawaii on our Blue Water mission. Just give her a bookmark right now. I just come. I don't know you, but you've just become a delivery person. Thank you. Welcome to Blue Water, by the way. You're going to do fine here. Yeah. What else? Yo, there you go. You learned boxing. That's good, because you're the younger brother, and, and you're going to need that. You learn boxing. Camachos, they don't mess around. Yeah. Way in the back, Mayor. Who you rely on. Oh, that's interesting. There are stories there. We won't get into it, but who you rely on is important. I, I hope I hope you rely on God. There may be more to that as well. Excellent. Alright, one more. Change about yourself. Ariel. You change what? You changed school. Oh, you're going to a new school. I remember those changes. For your new school, you can have a bookmark. (laughs) So what 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 were the key uh, to these big changes in your life? What was the key? What was the key to, to the transformation? What's that? God? God, God. The answer is always like God. or pray. We're in church after all. And uh, yes, believing God is who He says He is. Yeah, it goes with that. Yeah, in one way or another, I, I I conduct this experiment in different places at different times, and and uh, with believers, with non-believers. You know, it doesn't matter. And I and I, because change just fascinates me, like. People changing just fascinates me, how that happens and what, and what goes into it. And, and, and I find, independent of who's in the crowd, that when people change successfully, uh, the most important ingredient is always, in one way, shape, or form, faith. Right, That they decided to trust in something. And that led to try, and try led to do, and do led to change. Uh, faith in God, uh, of course, uh, is a big one. All right, exercise number two. Exercise number two. This is going to have to—you know, you have to get the creative juices flowing. So go ahead and massage your scalp. Some of you have more direct access than others. All right. So th- this kind of a thought experiment. Visualize uh, that God has called you into His office. Uh, you've you've gotten—you've uh, gotten a text. And, and God says, hey, come on in here. I want, I, wanna, I want some time with you. All right, question number one. Do you feel happy or scared? Yeah, that's kind of interesting. All right, but you go into God's office, and he's sitting there uh, behind his desk, and I don't know what he looks like. Maybe he's just like a column of light with a suit on or something. I'm not sure, but whatever it is uh, in your imagination, God's behind his desk, and, uh, and he says, man, I'm just excited about you being here. Uh, Tell me, how's it going, and uh, what can I help you with? What do you say? (laughs) Everything. D, all of the above. (laughs) Sir, how long do you have, sir? Ah. You'd ask for wisdom. How old are you? Twelve years old. She'd ask for wisdom. Just take a moment and let that shame settle in <laughs> being schooled by the 12 year old once again, yeah, I want to ask you for more questions uh, we 'll get on with it it 's hot today and um, it 's such a potentially uh, fruitful uh, thought experiment though what 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 do you say? If God says, yeah, I'm excited, I'm excited that you're here, uh, what, what can I do for you? What, what can I help you with? What sort of things do you say? Like Noah's answer, all of the above. Because I think if we're honest about it, as that conversation uh, might unfold, we'd be like, well, you know, I've got this problem. I've got that problem. I really could use some provision here. I'm pursuing this in my dreams. You could help me with that. I really want to fulfill this purpose. You could help me with that. Almost invariably, I get around to, and also I like to change this about myself i don't like this um, i'd like to let go of that um, this personality trait uh it's it's kind of dark and bothersome you know we'd we'd ask for some more fundamental personal uh, changes as well. I think that picture of like. God sort of calling you into his office and be like, man, I'm so excited that you get to be here. Um, What can I help you with? That's just a great picture of our life with God. And our life with God should be filled with purpose and God empowering us to live out our purpose because we are supposed to live with meaning and impact. But invariably, our life with God will also be about changing things that, if we're totally honest, really need to be changed about ourselves. And the reason I'm talking about all of this stuff is we're in a sermon series on the life of this guy, Paul, a uh, huge, huge figure in the New Testament, probably the greatest missionary, greatest church planner of all time, uh, wrote uh, the largest number of books uh, in the New Testament. Well, Paul had all sorts of change issues. He grappled with change culture a lot. He traveled around a lot of the known world, not just through uh, Jewish territories. He was a Jew, but through uh, Central Asia and eventually over into Europe, into Greece. And he was the guy that kind of brought the faith to Europe. And, and he's traveling to all these people who, who, uh, who don't, didn't know anything about the Jewish tradition uh, and just, uh, were just hearing about uh, Jesus uh, for the first time. And, and everywhere he went, Paul invented what he did. Everywhere he went, he had to figure out how to communicate the truth about the one true God and the story of God to people who really had no categories for it and might not have had a changed culture, right? They might have just been stuck in their identity, uh, whatever that was. And was constantly wrestling with this sort of issue. Uh, Jesus came and, and disrupted the Jewish tradition, right? The, the, the way that, that Jews thought uh, about how to get right uh, with God. And and that that was disruption enough. And then then Paul had to take that truth, that disruption, to the Gentiles who didn't have the Jewish tradition. So what what was the basic thing? What was the fundamental thing that he needed to communicate? He determined that the story of God and humanity really wasn't a Jewish tradition. It was a universal story of God. And we We talked about that a couple weeks ago when we studied Paul in in Athens. In that story, the Hebrews played a unique role, uh, but only a role. Paul's puzzle was how to think about getting right with God given what Jesus did. How do you get right with God? That's the question. And how did he explain that to absolutely anyone? What did it mean to get right with God? What did it mean to get an appointment with God in his office and have God be like, all right, here we go. We have a relationship. How, how can I help you? How to get right with God, how to explain that to people who had no concept, uh, particularly who had no concept of the background of the story, uh, which had a lot to do with Jewish tradition. <clears throat> Over the centuries, the church has explained in different ways how to get right with God. Most recently, uh, in our area of the world, getting right with God had a... The the explanation had a particular style to it. It went something like this. You know, there's a gap between you and God uh, because you have sinned. Uh, Jesus came and paid the penalty for your sin, so now now you can be with God. Now that gap can be closed. If you choose uh, not to accept that Jesus paid your penalty, you will burn forever in hell. So make the right choice. Yes, did I get that more or less correct? You know, and a lot of us kind of grew up with hearing uh, that explanation. That's actually a fairly recent way to explain it. For most of Christian history of the last 2,000 years, uh, it had been something entirely different just to illustrate. People have wrestled with this a long time and chosen to articulate it in different ways. And Paul articulated it in different ways depending on the crowd that he was with the one thing he always articulated was it's important to get right with God. Um, So a few comments on the way the Jews uh, understood things. The Jewish take on getting right with God was you got right with God through obeying the law. Everybody say the law. And part of the law uh, had to do with what you did when you disobeyed the law. So it was kind of like traffic laws, which most of us, unfortunately, understand. Uh, If you get caught disobeying traffic laws, say, I don't know, theoretically driving too fast on the freeway, not that it's ever happened to anyone here. Um, You get a a citation, a ticket, and then what do you have to do? Well, you you have to buy off the law, right? You have to pay a financial penalty. And then once you do, you're right with the law again. So the law has built into it a correction mechanism. And the Jewish law had something like this. It's like the law specified what to do and what not to do. Now, if you disobeyed the law and everybody was bound to do it um, at one time or another, uh, then you paid penalties. And there there was a very structured system. Of paying penalties, just like there's a very structured system of paying traffic violations. You know, what this costs, what that costs, how you do it, and stuff when you do it, and stuff like that. And so uh, you, would, you would buy off the law. You would pay for your your disobediences, your sins, your transgressions, and, and, and you know, the payment for sin was, well, essentially, really, it was whatever you could afford. Uh, back in the day. A lot of times it was sacrifice of an animal. It required blood, but if you couldn't afford an animal, uh, it was, you know, a handful of cereal, a handful of grains, and stuff like that. Um, sometimes offerings were just activities that you did, but you, you, uh, you got right with the law by paying penalties. That was the law. Uh, Paul thought about uh, Jesus and his role in the law, because it was quite controversial when Jesus was walking On the earth, and he realized something. He realized that being right with God was actually never about the law, unlike what the Jews uh, thought. It wasn't really about keeping rules so God wouldn't get mad at you. That really wasn't the heart of the story, that was just a device that God was using to explain something to us. Nor was it about fulfilling penalties, paying penalties so that you could buy God off so that He wouldn't be mad at you anymore. Yeah, in other words, it wasn't about appeasing God so that He could stand to be with you, so that He could cross that gap. It wasn't about that. Now, the law, you know, God's commandments, uh, they played a role, but God's plan had always been bigger, and it all had to do with a word that Paul became famous for. And that word was grace. In Greek, charis. Um, grace. Generosity. Favor. Free gifts. Things like that. And Paul became a champion of grace in a way that, that totally changed the world, uh, changed the way that we think about God, and and, and colored his life uh, for sure. Uh, I'm going to read a text out of the, the book of Romans. Uh, so, Paul wrote letters to different churches that he planted around the world. We've read from some of those letters. There's a letter to the church in Philippi. We call it Philippians. There's a couple letters to the church in Corinth. We call them 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And then he wrote a letter to uh, the believers in Rome. We call that, not surprisingly, Romans. Uh, Romans is the epistle that. Uh, That people study to understand theology. It's the epistle that they study to understand how to get right with God because Paul talked a lot about how to get right with God in Romans. I'm going to tell you right now that the Apostle Paul would have flunked a high school composition class. He just doesn't write. In a sort of straightforward, well organized manner. To his credit, people didn't read or learn in that manner back in the day. They had a different way of processing information. So, reading Paul's explanation of deep theology uh, can be a little maddening, a little frustrating. Not because he wasn't brilliant, but because, uh, you know, it was just, it's just a different world and a different style. Uh, so, I have excerpted from Romans chapter 5, Romans 5 and 7. This is just kind of the heart of Pauline theology. Let's do our best with this today, and let's decide, to, let's decide to be excited about it, even though the writing is a little confusing. Can I get an amen? amen? Here we go. So Paul's trying to explain basically how people get right with God. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, All right, that should jump out right there. We're not justified by keeping the commandments or satisfying the penalties of the law or anything like that. We have been justified through faith. uh, Pistis in the Greek, trusting God. We have been justified through faith. We have peace with God. We're, We're now right with God because of our faith, what we've trusted in. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I mean, that's not crystal clear. That's kind of a secretious way of writing. But, but this is a very famous Paul doctrine. It's like, no, you're justified by faith. It's not by whether you obey the law really, really well. It's by trusting God and particularly trusting in something that has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, making Jesus Lord. But the whole point of, of trusting God is that we get access to grace. That in, at, in the final analysis, it's God's generosity that gets you into God's office for the conversation. It's because he wants you to be there, and he's overlooking whatever needs to be overlooked to get you there. And that's all very, very good news. To be sure... Uh, sin was in the world before the law was given, uh, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where, the, where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as in Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. Everybody clear on that? Heck no. No. Uh, what, what Paul is saying here is like, you know, before there was a Jewish law, there was still a problem with sin. There was still a problem with people disobeying and not trusting God. And that's how death got into the world. So, you know, this predates the law. This story is bigger than the Jewish tradition, uh, Paul was saying. Sin is a serious thing. It kills people. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's, bigger, it's bigger than anyone's tradition Uh, is what he's saying. Consequently, just as uh, one trespass ruled, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, he's talking about Adam and Eve's fall, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. There's something pivotal about what Jesus did. The law was brought in, so when, it, when, when the Jewish tradition started, when God gave the Ten Commandments and everything that followed, when the law, was, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Some of your translations will say the law was brought in so that sin might increase. So the job of the law was to increase sin in the world. Got that? Is that clear? Okay. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's just stop there and chew on that a little bit. Uh, this is why people go to seminary to wrestle with stuff like this. Here's, here's, here's a basic synopsis of what's going on, I think. Um, the, the most powerful phrase so far has been, you know, access by grace, excuse me, access by faith to God's grace. What, however we get right with God, it starts with us just trusting in God's goodness. Trust is another word for faith. You have to live a life of faith. That's how you do it. It might not be a perfect life, but it's going to be a life filled with trusting God. It might not be perfect according to the law, but you're going to do your best to trust God, and God is going to respond to you with a whole bunch of generosity so it's not a legal transaction. It's just a relational condition. That's the heart of it all. Okay, we have that much, right? That much we understand. Give me a fist pump. Uh, headbutt the person next to you. Just make sure your your brain is active. Um, uh. Then he shifts gears and he talks about, uh, well, you know, the role of the law. And and he has this idea that, well, God gave us the law um, so that we would, when he says sin might increase, it's so that we would become aware of our wrongdoing. I mean, the reason he gave us commands is so that we would have a standard for obedience and disobedience, so that we would know how messed up we were, in other words, now, it was a real law, and when you disobey a real law, you know, real penalties happen, right? But, but the law was just a device to help us realize the general condition of humanity, which is like, yeah, somewhere along the line we had messed up, we forgot who we were, we forgot who God was, and the whole, the whole story of the law was God's way of just getting us to recognize what the deal was, that we were messed up and... Uh, that we weren't really good at doing what God said, that we weren't really good at treating each other well, and so there were all these rules about how to treat each other. We weren't really good about staying on point in life, and the law helped us uh, to, to get clear on all of that stuff. Part of it was that we started to feel guilty, right? Because there were rules, and whenever there's a rule in life, you start to feel guilty uh, because you don't keep rules uh, perfectly perfectly. Um, and then Christ came. And what was, what was his, his role exactly? Here's a section from the passage that I didn't put in the program. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we will, were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son— <clears throat> How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we will also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Is that clear? Probably not. Because he just said we are justified by faith, and now he says we are justified through Christ's blood. What is going on there? Well, Christ died on the cross, and that did have to do with the law In some respect, he did pay a penalty because remember where there's a real law, there are real penalties. But God wanted to to be clear that the law was just a device to make us aware of a general condition, right? So he had to kind of get rid of the law somehow. So he told another beautiful story. And this story had to do with his son walking among us. You know, God incarnate eventually offering himself as a sacrifice, being killed by our sin. In other words, so Jesus' death took care of that. It's how, uh, how God uh, addressed uh, the law problem. Uh, the law was never the device that allowed us to get right with God, but it did kind of need to be taken care of. Right? It's important to understand uh, how that works. Uh, Colossians 2 another letter that Paul wrote says when when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made you alive with Christ he forgave all of our sins having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us he has taken it away nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. It speaks of cancellation, not payment per se. Uh, Jesus dying on the cross wasn't about appeasing God. God didn't need that to happen because he was really angry at us and needed blood to be shed to calm down, which is how it gets explained sometimes. God didn't need for the sacrifice to happen in order to cross the gap to be with us. That's also false. How do we know? Because God became man and came to be with us while we were yet sinners, as Paul says, all of that explanation is false. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross had the purpose of just eliminating the law and the condemnation that it, it brought. It sort of like canceled canceled the rules. That's how Paul would think about it. Um, it wasn't about appeasing God. It was about dismissing the law once and for all. So we could, the law had served its purpose, now it could go away. In other words, uh, as uh, the author of Hebrews put it, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the sacrifices they offer year by year, make perfect those who draw near. It was never going to make us right, right? It was never the path to being right with God. But it could condemn us, right? It could never make us right with God, but it could make us feel guilty. It could give people basis of accusation against us, and that was still a problem. And so Jesus came, offered himself as a sacrifice, and said, look, if the law requires penalties, clearly my death is enough to cover all of them. So, boom, I'm buying off the law forever. It's done. We don't have to worry about that anymore. That's no longer the basis of anything. Or as it says in the book of Ephesians, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, he made it done. He just set the law aside. Uh, When Jesus came to earth, he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to complete it or some translations will say, perfect it. Uh, in other words, you know, he wasn't pretending that the rules didn't count, but he was completing the purpose of the rules. And remember, the purpose of the rules were not to make us right with God. The purpose of the rules was to sort of teach us right, for wrong, right and wrong, make us aware that, uh, that we were messed up. Its purpose was not to appease God. So we're in a different age right now, and I'll sum up all of that craziness by just saying this. Once we know the truth, we can abolish the rules, and presumably everyone will still behave properly. All right? You get that? That's kind of, that's kind of the heart of Paul's theology and all of these incredibly complex passages in the epistles, so I'll say it again. Once you know the rules, excuse me, once you know the truth, you can forget the rules. Because the rules were there just to help us live according to the truth. Right? So once you know the truth, you can forget the rules and still presumably you'll live okay because you'll honor the truth. Is that clear? Have we made it? That's as theological, theological as Blue Water Mission will ever get. Give yourself some snaps. You sat through it on a hot day. You're very excited. I can tell. Once we know the truth, we can abolish the rules. And presumably, everyone will still behave properly because they have a truth culture. They're growing toward the truth. That's the way that it's supposed to work. Uh, Let me just read the last half of this uh, passage. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? See, Paul had a problem. It's like, look, Christ kind of abolished the, the, the need to fixate on the rules, right? Once you know the truth, the rules can go away. Wait a minute. There are no rules. That means I can do anything I want, right? Oh, come on. You were thinking it loophole! Um, and, uh, and in a way that's uh, in a very, very technical way that's kind of true, but here's how Paul addressed it. Shall we go on sinning just so, you know, God can be endlessly generous with us since, you know, he doesn't really care so much about the rules in the same way that we thought he did? And Paul says, no, no. Uh, that That would be stupid because you've died to sin, right? Remember, the problem of sin predated the law anyway. I mean, sin has always been destructive. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. You're not under the law. You're under grace. Do it out of generosity and freedom, not because somebody's pounding you on the head with a stick. Sin masters you, he says. And that's actually the first way that sin was introduced in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. When Cain was thinking about murdering his brother Abel, God comes to him and says, Sin is crouching at your door. You must master it or it will master you. Sin is like a drug. It's addictive. If you give it an inch, it will take a mile. Once you start sinning, you cannot stop. It just changes you. Paul said in the different epistles, it darkens your understanding. Sin makes you stupid. If you sin, your brain becomes so cloudy you can no longer think straight. And ultimately, you don't even know what sin is anymore. You don't even know what good is and what bad is. And if you get there, then God will have to send rules again to clear it up. And we don't want to go back to that, Paul says. Sin makes you stupid. It's like taking a drug. You know, It's like someone who's had four drinks. And you can tell by talking to them, they're drunk. But they're like, no, nah, I'm fine to drive. What's the problem? Well, I mean, the drinking has sort of compromised their thinking, right? They no longer know how messed up they are. That's what sin does to us. It masters us. That's the problem. The law is not the problem. The, law, the problem is the primary effect of sin. So why would you do that? Why would you go back to that death? God didn't give you freedom just so you, should, you could piss it away. That would be really, really dumb. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace by no means? Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, it's going to kill you, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You get to choose what enslaves you, which is kind of a funny way to say it, but... It's a metaphor he chose. But thanks be to God that, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from the heart the pattern of teaching. The pattern of teaching rather than the law. Isn't that a nice phrase? The pattern of teaching. Now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Once you know the truth, you no longer need the rules, but you still behave properly. And that keeps you free so that you can be who you want to be, live how you want to live, Trusting God and doing the things that he's designed you to do. Um, It's a freedom-based theology. He finishes off by saying, when you were slaves to sins, you were free from the control of righteousness, which is a funny way to say it, but when you were slaves to sin, you were out of control. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? You thought they were good, but looking back, you can tell that they were kind of nasty. Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In case there was any lack of clarity on the issue, Paul says, what's at stake, you learning to live correctly, is whether or not you get to live eternally. If you don't learn how to live correctly... You don't get to live eternally. You get you get snuffed out because you're not going to be you're not going to be trustworthy uh, in the in the next life. So live correctly. I think Paul's theology is both harder and easier. You know, it's easier to get right with God these days because you don't have to obey the rules perfectly. You don't have to obsess with making sacrifices and stuff like that. You just need to trust that God is for you and then he'll give you a lot of generosity that's, that's pretty easy right I mean that's, that's, like, that's like really really good news on the other hand living according to your trust in God is a lot harder than just keeping ten commandments and obeying religious services you know because it's open ended you know if you trust God what do you have to do whatever God wants you to do, you know. God's not going to expect you to do it perfect, but it, it might be high demand. It might require your life, you know. It's, it's freewheeling. The life of freedom is easier and far scarier <laughs> than the life of just trying to keep the rules. We have to grow up to understand this. All right, what does all this mean for you? Paul was never trying to convert anyone to a new religion. He was, uh, he was merely trying to get people to accept and follow the truth about God and to interact with God immediately and powerfully. He doesn't care where you came from. He doesn't didn't care what your identity was. He was just saying, look, there's a truth about God. God is really good. He's really loving. He's been telling a universal story from the very beginning. Um, you need to interact with him. And he's going to give you power to do some incredible things in your life. Well, how do I do that? Well, one, you've got to admit that you're messed up. You know, you can just skip all of the legalese about the law and the gap and penalties paid and all of that stuff. You can just skip over that and just kind of admit that you're messed up. I mean, however you want to understand it and describe it, the fact is that you're not what you should be. One of the interesting things about studying comparative religion and comparative truth systems around the world is that that is something that they all agree upon. There is no world system, there's no religious system, there's no truth system that doesn't believe that humans are not what they should be. We all know it's true. It's just that we often won't admit it when the pressure's on. Yeah, humans are messed up. Me, I will never admit to a mistake. But humanity is messed up. It's like, no, no, this has got to get really personal. Yeah, you're, you're messed up, you know. And your identity is no excuse. There's only one truth. Yeah. you got to admit that you're messed up. That seems pretty basic. Um, here's what to do about being messed up. Honor God's way. Honor God's way. Okay, well, what's God's way? Okay, well, here's my first answer. Just dedicate yourself to know it dedicate yourself to pursue it and to understand it. It's a journey, right? It's a journey. Um, You're going to have to work on it probably for the rest of your life. But you could say a few things about it. There is a God. Let him be in charge of you. You need to make God master. He's not an idea that you contemplate. He's not something that you believe in. He's someone that you trust. He has to be in charge. Uh, you You can't just have a God. You need to have a Lord that's pretty clear. Uh, Do make God Lord by accepting God on his terms. Uh, What are his terms? Well, it turns out that his terms are extraordinarily generous. Uh, It's about grace. It's very free, Uh, so that's good. But his terms also include the story of Christ. I mean, Christ was a real person uh, who did die and he died apparently for some reason and you've got to kind of accept that and figure it out it's like what is it about jesus that is so pivotal well you know investigate investigate but jesus makes a very good lord and that's what the early christians started to preach it's like this guy this guy jesus he's the one to follow he's the one to obey He gave the pattern of teaching that is really important, and that's not negotiable. I mean, that's how God did it. Maybe he could have done it in some different way, but the fact is God did it through Jesus, and you need to honor God's way. That's part of being humble and admitting that you're messed up. Be humble. Uh, Follow Jesus. Why are we having the baptism today? Um, for 2,000 years, baptism has been uh, a ritual that Jesus' followers have shared. Basically, it's a symbol of, of starting again, right? Uh, it symbolizes death to the old you. You go under the water, and you come out alive to a new you. Uh, it's, a, it's a washing away uh, of the old. Now, it's just a ritual, it's just a ceremony, right? I mean, there's nothing magical that happens when a person gets dunked in the water, even if a person gets dunked in the water in the name of Jesus. There's nothing magical that happens. But here's what I've learned. When you want to change your life, there's a lot that goes into changing a life. You can't, you can't just decide to change a life. You have to exercise your decision. You know, you have to make it real for yourself. And part of making it real for yourself is making it real for the people around you. And so although baptism is just a ritual, it's, it's a potent one. I mean, there are good reasons for doing a public celebration of a new start. You have to be humble about these things. That's why we're celebrating baptism today. How about the rest of us? What does this mean uh, for the rest of us? Maybe you've been baptized, you've been following Jesus a long time. Maybe this excursion into complicated Pauline theology was nothing new for you. Uh, My advice uh, for the rest of us would be um, uh, something I tell myself all the time when when following Jesus and trying to live a life of faith. Don't be a know-it-all is probably number one, because you're messed up after all. Don't be too wedded to how you explain the life of Jesus. Don't be too wedded to how you explain how to get right with God. Just admit you're messed up. Honor God's way. Make Jesus Lord. That seems to be really pivotal. and try to trust God every day. The kingdom of God is not a place for experts. It's a place for practitioners and humble pilgrims. And it's helpful uh, to have that spirit uh, among us. Trust that God is good. Make Jesus your master. Do righteousness and fulfill your calling as best as as you understand it. Uh, I started the sermon uh, by saying, well, you know, what significant change have you made recently and, and what was what was the key? Uh, let's, let's end it in a similar fashion. Just say, well, you know, what significant change uh, is on your menu for the immediate future? Uh, what do you want to... Imagine that you're back in that office with God, you know. Do you want him to help you with some breakthrough in your life of purpose? Do you want him to make you a more powerful minister? help you to understand something that you're confused about? That's a good change. Or do you want to change something about yourself? There's a pattern for change in the kingdom of God. Number one, admit that you need it. (laughs) Admit that you're messed up. Number two, honor God's way. Like, okay, what, what is the godly way to go about this? Number three, Make Jesus Lord. Like, okay, Jesus, lead me through this in a way that's immediate, relational, and powerful. Uh, So let's end with a prayer exercise today. Along those lines Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we are all people in pursuit of uh, truth. Whatever uh, whatever our identity is, Lord, uh, it's not what we are. It is what we are becoming in you. Our identity lies uh, in you. So we want to be changeful people, Lord, uh, whether that means making Jesus Lord for the first time or making Jesus Lord over a piece of our life that we have neglected. Uh, By your Spirit, Lord, I pray that you'd point to something that uh, maybe would be good to change. admit that we're messed up about that thing maybe we just admit that we're messed up in general father god uh, you made us and you're good please show us your way how do we change or how do we change that thing what's the way We submit to you, Jesus, in this process. Uh, You're the pattern for our life. Thank you, God, that you are generous and excited for us. Thank you that you took care of all the details so that we could just interact with you directly. Thank you for the beautiful stories that you've told in the world. stories of law, stories of Christ, stories of the Holy Spirit Church. And thank you for making us part of them. In Jesus' name, everybody says, Amen.